Hi there, I'm Jake Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance. This is our gift to you for free every single week. This is the chart-topping podcast that reminds you that it's within. Your ambition, your purpose, your story, it's all within. We just help you unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes, an expert in high-performing team cultures, to speak to the greatest leaders, thinkers, entrepreneurs, and in this case, sports stars on the planet so they can be your teacher. Please remember, right, this podcast is not about high achievement. It's not about high success. It's only about high happiness, high self-worth, taking you closer to a life of fulfillment, empathy, and understanding. You will be in a better place for being with us for the next hour. It's as simple as that. And today, this is what's in store. I certainly the, the 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 one of the biggest regrets I had was the last period at Chelsea where we came into out of nowhere we were second in the league and came into a short run of defeats which saw me lose my job in the space of a month from like second in the table to to I think ninth the way it went and I think four defeats in the league and boom you're gone but in that period I was I was striving to solve a hundred problems as I came away I went don't get in that position again Frank you've got to trust in yourself in those moments and probably I, I felt what was coming. It certainly wasn't just my fault, by the way, because I think that should be a two-way responsibility because you need to feel support. Like you're saying about if you, how do you get like a long-term vision? Well, you better be supported back when it is a little bit tough because that's that's the reality of football, unless you're like Liverpool and City winning every game. But let's not forget when those early stages of Liverpool coming here, it was some tough moments, Jurgen Klopp's first year before that, or Pep Guardiola, you know, nothing's perfect. They work through these and they have trust and sometimes the trust comes from their previous work and fair play to them because they can both go, I've done this and done this. I suppose at Chelsea, I didn't have a, a body of work to go, I've done this. So I, I suppose that maybe didn't work for me in that sense. There is an idea of a vision here and I really hope that we can stick to it through the tough times because they will be here for us. We saw that last year. We were in a, a whisker of going down into the championship and so we have to just respect that for what it is and go, okay, well, we, we better make some changes and it's not just about what play we're bringing in this window. It's also about every little thing that we do to get that long-term thing, in, that plan to bring it into practice. I want to be on the pitch after a game if we win and I want to walk around Goodison and say thanks very much and feel that. I get a buzz off that. So welcome along then to round two with Frank Lampard. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, they've already had Frank Lampard on the podcast a couple of years ago. And that's right. However, this is a totally different Frank Lampard. This is an episode that is a reminder to you all the time that you are not fixed. And at the end of this episode, you will be a different person to the one listening right now. That is how life works. That's how life changes. And Frank is a totally different person to two years ago when we spoke to him. Since then, he's had the sack from Chelsea. He survived at Everton. The whole thing has been a huge learning curve for him. But this, this idea that nothing is fixed is really good news for you. And you need to understand it because if things are bad for you right now and if you've come to high performance because you're struggling or life isn't where you want it to be, then the fact that nothing is fixed, nothing is permanent and everything can change, is great news for you. Equally, if life is amazing at the moment, if you're flying, if you're winning, if you're feeling fantastic, please remember that nothing is fixed. This state won't last forever. And that's why, while you have it, you need to understand why it's there, and that way you can then get it back. And you also need to just savour it. I've said that for years, those two important words, savour it, because trust me, none of us have as much time as we think. So explore life while you're here. You're going to hear Frank talk um, about the culture clash at Chelsea. And I think 
that's a really good reminder of the fact that there's so much that we don't know that goes on in this world. And it's very easy for people to look at it from the outside and go, oh, not as good a manager as we thought he was or wasn't able to manage those players. We didn't know the full story. And we're closer to knowing the full story after this hour that we spent with Frank Lampard. But let that be a reminder to you that you know so little about everyone else's lives. And therefore, you must value empathy over opinion every single time. As always, this is not a conversation about football. This isn't a conversation with a football manager. This is a conversation about life with an inquisitive human being who, trust me, and I've now been lucky enough to know Frank for the last four or five years, he is a totally different person, totally different to the guy that I first met when he was fresh out of the game, very different to the man who was managing Chelsea and even different to six months ago before he kept Everton in the Premier League. So enjoy this episode of High Performance. Frank Lampard comes next. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like you, I was listening to the first episode and I thought we would start with what is high performance, but maybe start with whether anything's different. So you're, when we spoke initially, you said hard work, talent, and a certain type of intelligence represents high performance. Have any of those three changed in the intervening two years since we last spoke? No, none of those three has changed. And um, listening back to it this morning, um, I'm, I was on the bike in the, in the gym. I was pleased I went through it because I was pleased with myself. I thought, no, I still feel like that. It's a good thing. <laughs> There's some add-ons, I think. And it's a strange thing, isn't it? I think in, in life and in management, uh, on your job, whatever. I think you there's this balance of how much do I evolve and change for the better and how much do I stick to my core beliefs of, of what I think I'm about and what, what gets me there. And then you get affected by, you know, a hundred things, sometimes a hundred things a day as a manager. And um, the big thing that happened to me, obviously, is I lost my job after speaking to you. And it's funny as well, Damien later on in the, in the episode goes, you know, that you called it the messy patch or something. You, you talked about my curve and, and you called it. It's and coming. You, no, but you and actually agree. said, you said, oh, we've already had that, I think. Do you remember? Yeah. You went, no, we've, I think we've had the yeah, me- messy how middle. Wrong, how wrong was I? But that's, li- that's life and, it's, and that's fine. But I think the, the one thing I would add to it, and it probably correlates with what, what happened in my job there and probably what I'm sort of working out at Everton in different circumstances. I think I said a few things that you can control 
yourself. I mean, intelligence is, is, is a weird one, but it's, uh, my point was more work smart, do those things. So the one thing I didn't, which I would add now, is timing and the uncontrollables, which I listen to a lot of your stuff and I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I had a year to do that, actually, out of a job. And, I, I, you know, some of these the podcasts you can come away from and hear great stories of amazing teams of multiple champions of winners and individual stories, team stories. And I always kind of go, having been in this, the more I live this situation, how perfect is the story really? Because it sounds great. You know, this person, a great coach, can be telling you about it. And American football, something that I don't know much about in terms of detail. But I'm like, wow, that sounds, what a great idea that was. And he had an incredible environment of players. And they all worked together and they won these things. And then I wondered about how true that is. And sometimes when you're telling the story, you refer back to certain parts. Not, not everything's like this. It's just my feeling. And, I, and my feeling as I came out of it was you have to have timing, which means lots of things, talent, recruitment. Um, and the main thing I've felt is an, an alignment when you're working in team sport and at a club and a, and a corporation, wherever it is. Um, there has to be an alignment in terms of the idea. And, and that's something that I think is a huge thing. Now, not everybody has to think exactly the same, but you have to have a vision and a target you want to get to and a basic idea of how you get there. And I think if those things aren't aligned in team sport, I think it's probably hard to get there. And I think have got some pretty good examples in the Premier League straight away when you look at the evolution of Liverpool and Manchester City. Liverpool had a lot of years without winning anything. And it seems like that at some point, somewhere it happened, and probably Jurgen Klopp is a huge part of it, but where things changed and, and aligned and, and yeah. worked in a direction and we see the results. And Manchester City, I was lucky enough to have a year there. And even though it was before their, their, their sort of dominations happened with Pep Guardiola, you smelt the building. It was an alignment of this is where we're going to get to. And it, and it doesn't matter that we came, the year I was there, we came second and probably fell below expectations for a club. You could see it's no surprise to me that I left because from owner, chairman, sporting director, whatever, all the way down through, there was something about the place that was going in one place. So I think that's a really interesting thing. Let's delve deeper then into alignment and, and how you get it, why it's not there, how you can... I, I assume what you're saying is there wasn't an alignment at Chelsea, culturally, between you and them? Yeah, po possibly. And, uh, and I'm not taking away my responsibility because I think you've got to be able to deal with it, whatever it is, because that's success and success is relative. So... Um, you know, there are things that probably I went in and, and again it fascinates me when I, I listen to yourselves and you're talking about um, non-negotiables negotiables we spoke about it and we spoke before and my, my thing was you have to be able to kind of move on them it's not possible in the workplace to to have this these red lines everywhere and um, so I'm not asking for that and if there are if, there, if you understand quickly that there are some things that are, are not so important in the bigger picture for this club they want results you maybe have to sort of take your eye away from this perfect image you had of, I'm going in here, I'm going to change, you know, our philosophy. I'm going to change the culture. I'm going to change that department because I think that's short. Sometimes I think in the big scheme to have that lovely little podcast when you want everything in, a, in an hour of chat, there's a, there's a lot <laughs> there before, which is, you know, and probably experienced, more experienced coaches than myself or people probably go, yeah, because of that, you shouldn't have come in and focused so much on that. Maybe you could have done that. So I'm taking responsibility as well, but I still, in that sort of search to not be, um, to not completely take responsibility or, or give responsibility away, I kind of think, I came away from Chelsea, I think there were some things I was right in my thoughts and how I wanted it to be. And there's some things maybe like I go, yeah, but I should have dealt with it slightly differently to get to my goals which at Chelsea were in year one to do what we did. I think that was success. In the second year, it didn't happen and, and things ended. And then I start reflecting on a few things I thought could I have done a bit better there. But 
I also think that the alignment from the top has to be good if you want sustained success. If you're talking about performance well, over a period of time. that's interesting Frank, because I think what you're touching on doesn't get spoken about enough that when you see a manager fail, that often it'll be a cultural failure mm. because they've come in talking one type of culture mm. and the reality is it's another. So, I mean, there's some fascinating research on this by a couple of guys from Stanford University that they said, traditionally, you put a group of people together, you'll get one of five types of culture. So what Chelsea looks like from the outside looking in is one of those types is an autocratic culture mm. where it's, it was dominated for a long period by one individual, in this mm. case, Abramovich. So, I don't know if you remember when um, Carlo Ancelotti spoke about thunderbolt defeats that came out of the blue mm. would often create a huge amount of uncertainty mm. whether the owner was upset. Mm. You can have a star culture where you go after recruiting like big name players, mm. bringing them in and everything's done to service and keep them happy. Mm. And then you talk about um, a bureaucratic culture, lots of rules and regulations where you have some managers come in laying the law down and engineering culture is where you just prize technical ability over anyone else. So you might go, he's a bit of a dick, but actually he's a good left back or whatever. Yeah. But what you were coming in and talking about on our last interview was the fifth type, which was a commitment culture, which is where alignment happens, where everybody's bought into a really clear sense of purpose. Mm. This is what we're here for. Mm. And a really clear set of behaviors of mm. this is how we're going about doing it. So what I was so when I listened back to the interview, I was thinking you were talking a different language to mm. maybe what the owner was talking or mm. what other people was. So I often find it interesting that when like when it doesn't work, it's often a, a if you view it through a cultural lens, it makes sense why it doesn't mm. work. You know, like if you bring in like a, the example we talk about is say somewhere like Manchester United mm. in the years since Ferguson have been mm. in. They've gone after autocratic managers. Mm. They've had superstars, mm. players. They've had bureaucratic principles of signing. So mm. a lot of the time you see them fighting each other yeah. rather than focused on delivering on the field. Mm. It's, it's so interesting because I'm very reflective across the board and I'm a, you know, Chelsea's a club very close to my heart. So I, talk, I, I think about the era of Roman Abramovich and since I joined. So I'm not talking about my time and, you know, Chelsea didn't align with me. They should have done, you know, and then it would have been yeah. perfect. It's not that case because I think it, when I talk about consistency, you probably look at a period of time and go, did Chelsea succeed? Yes, they did because they won, they've won a lot. But is, has there been um, a consistent level probably over the last 10 years in terms of what you would expect in delivery? You could probably question it in terms yeah. of what Manchester City and now Liverpool have both attained. So I think those things are, are really important to look at. And and I, and I and I wouldn't I'd, I'd stress not to when you talk about Roman Abramovich I think it became slightly different because he's not on the ground running the club and I think you know like when you have people that are overseeing this place Finch Farm our training ground uh, and Goodison Park and everything that happens every day if you have someone driving that and it aligns underneath that then that's great but sometimes I think we're, with Chelsea it moved away from that the owner's the owner and you complete respect for that obviously and he did amazing things for Chelsea on a, on a footballing level but it's more making sure then you have the the idea of what's the connections down down the line so it's, it's fine and any person can own a football club and not be around that's the, absolutely their prerogative it doesn't mean that they don't care it can be the opposite but then okay well wh where do they delegate down what do they, they, they delegate down and then where do they delegate down to my job which is coach the team get results or you know the worst can happen or you get success and I think there are just a lot of layers that are behind the scenes there it's interesting when you talk about the forms of culture because I think it was it the third or fourth one you said there about having um, he's a bit of a dick but he's a good player 
Yeah. That, that's a really interesting one for me because I think as a manager, it's your responsibility definitely to be able to deal with <laughs> bit of a dick kind of yeah, people, yeah. you know, and and probably when I went and I probably had an idea, okay, some things I didn't like behaviourally, I would want to make a point of them and go, no, I want to work to get a group that behaves well, that goes in that direction. And sometimes it's not that simple. Sometimes it's not that simple that you can do that. And if you want to um, change it, you better be sure that you can change it in the right way. And you, if you're changing the people, you better be sure you can change the people. Yeah. You can't get caught somewhere in the middle. And then you'll live or die by your decisions. And so there were certain ones. I won't get into the individuals and the personal nature of it. But I think in my my learnings and reflections after Chelsea, it was a little bit like, it's very easy to sit there and go, I've got that one wrong. And then another night you can sit there and go, yeah, but if I throw myself back into that situation, this is what I was thinking. Yeah. And that's great. You just go over it. And there's, there's not necessarily a wrong and a right. But when I came to Everton, and completely different circumstances. It was good that I'd had that experience because I could check myself and go, okay, what's, what's, I always think, what's priorities now? Priorities are a huge thing in this job. As much as you have a long-term vision, I need to prioritise the game the next week, the training session the next, what happens, what might happen in my squad, an issue that might come up that I don't know. I just have to deal with it. So you can't get too far ahead of yourself. And I think I came away learning, okay, let's prioritise. And when I came into Everton, prioritise was stay in the Premier League and get results. So I, I took no time when I first got here to go, hmm, let me make sure this culture runs brilliantly and we're going to change yeah, yeah. the face of this club. Those steps, hopefully, are to come to, yeah. to get to where we want to be. So but it's, it's a really interesting side to get that balance right. And, you know, off the back of Chelsea, I did a lot of thinking about that side of things, much more than I did tactics and what my new formation might be when I move forward. So when you look back, what would you have done differently? With probably the experience of it, I'm a bit... I feel like I'm a bit cooler headed now. Probably being at Chelsea was such a place that was close to my heart and I was so desperate to do well that it put, I probably put pressure on myself. So even in our first year, when we came away, and I think it's a huge, it felt like a huge success with reflection, top four in year one. But when I was in it, it was like, we must make top four. We cannot be not make top four. I'm used to being that as a player. And now it's different. I didn't see that. And so I probably became a little bit on top of myself. And then in the second year, I certainly, the, 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 the one of the biggest regrets I have was the last period at Chelsea where we came into, out of nowhere, we were second in the league and came into a short run of defeats, which saw me lose my job in the space of a month. From like second in the table to, to I think, ninth the way it went and I think four defeats in the league and boom, you're gone. But in that period, I was, I was striving to solve 100 problems. As I came away, I went, don't get in that position again, Frank. You've got to trust in yourself in those moments. And probably I, I felt what was coming, the pressure, the thunderbolt, defeat that Carlo mentioned and two Thunderbolt defeats is a double Thunderbolt that's not good news <laughs> Chelsea yeah. and and I and I probably started to sort of second guess that and I and I, I think that's just experience of life and of this job and I probably experienced it in in a pretty cutthroat manner it felt at the time but that's what it is I went into Chelsea with an absolute understanding of, of what it was it was a club that I loved and now I just for the moment tick it off as a, an amazing experience that's a lot of good stuff and um, and one hopefully that, that serves me well as I go forward. But in terms of timing, if you had that time again, knowing what you now know about timing, do you think you'd maybe resist taking that job and, and wait for no, it? No, no, I would, I, would I would never do that. I was quite thoughtful when I took the job. I, I gave it a lot of time. Going from Derby uh, to Chelsea was, a, was, was a, something I absolutely had to do. And I love the fact that I've, I've done it. 
I, I don't think about it every day now. I'm very, uh, Christine always laughs at me. I'm very, I block things off. I box them off instantly and move on. And it, I'm, I'm good at doing it. It's quite a good, it's a good skill in this job. And um, so I don't think about it every day now, but I do know that I was proud to take the job, proud to get us into the Champions League, proud to get us through the Champions League group in the next year. And I lost the job and I watched them to go on, go on to win the, win the Champions League, which was a real tough one for me because I was like, Really happy for individuals and the club and the fans are amazing with me from the time I joined till till now and hopefully forever. Um, but the professional side of you goes, <sighs> you know what I mean. We, I, I sat there when we we played Seville in um, the last, one of the qualifying group stages games and we beat them four 0 away. It was beautiful. We played really well. And I remember saying to a couple of the staff, I said, we could win this. We can't win the league this year, Man City and Liverpool, but we could win this with what we have individually in this team if we can get it together. And of course, you know, I had a phase where it didn't go right and I didn't, but I, I, don't, I don't regret anything about taking it. A absolutely not. Can I just pick apart a few little bits there? The, the first one is the, the conversation about culture. So obviously you see Thomas Tuchel come in and go and win the Champions League with the, pretty, the same players in the same football club with you know, the same senior people above him. So what do you think he did that, that you didn't do then? Or, or did he fit into that culture in a different way to you? Maybe I don't, it's an it's no, interesting one, isn't it? It's really interesting. And um, I've got to be careful here because I can't, um, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm being funny about it. I also have just got respect that Thomas Tuchel coming in and did really well and I wasn't on the ground at that point. So that's just, that's just what it is. I suppose you, I'll become like yourself and I'll probably look from the outside and have an opinion. Uh, and I've got a few ins because I speak to people. So I know some things that felt different. I think the reality is we were a good team and I think there were a lot of things that we were doing well. The way we trained, the condition of the team. And at the end, when it wasn't going so well for those results, Chelsea is a club that very quickly, and it's part of the cultural thing I go back to, very, very quickly goes from really high up in terms of feeling around the place to, oh, hang on, what's happening here? The manager could be under pressure. That's a, it's the nature of the job. And that brings a whole new feeling. And when you consider that you have 25 outfield players, you know, three or four keepers, you might not be playing one of them or an outfield player and those sort of things, that, that environment becomes difficult quickly. Um, so I, I think, you know, it was, it was pretty clear to me in the last couple of weeks that we were there and, you know, I was under pressure and that was the way it was. And this is not to, as I say, with, with Thomas Tuchel, I've got to be very careful. This is not to talk down anything he did, but coming in can be a breath of fresh air, a change, a fresh slate. For those 14 that don't play every week, now they have an opportunity. It looked to me like he managed it incredibly well, changed the system. I won't get into the tactical side of it. I played a back three quite a lot. Not always. He went straight to it. I got it. I think that was just good coaching, good idea. He came in and made the change. Um, and you just have to give him credit for that. But I think probably the, the coming in um, and the, and the, the way he, he brought a freshness to it, he should just take credit for. And I'm, I'm not, I've got no problem with that. You know, when I say professionally, it was hard. That's not like, that shouldn't sound bitter. It's just, it's I'm totally driven. understandable. I'm just driven. Yeah, of course. You know, and, and I, and I want to do well. And then time absolutely sorts that one out in time because the first few weeks when you're walking around having lost your job uh, or the first couple of weeks after Champions League when people are going, well done, or then or they're not behind my back, whatever, they could be saying anything. You kind of think about it all the time. And then another month's pass, now I'm at Everton. I don't go there and go, oh, bloody, I wish I'd done that when I was at Chelsea and it wouldn't have turned out that way. I just sit there and go, it's an experience. And I look at Chelsea and I go, okay, the next year, where are they at? Okay, I respect the club. I'm doing my thing. It's completely different. There's a real value though in in realising that things change and how quickly they change, I think, mm. in football, particularly for a manager. Were you taken by surprise? Because I remember, you know, I was covering the games. You'd got to the final of the FA Cup, then you'd had that brilliant run through the group stage of the Champions League. And it felt like it unravelled so quickly. 
Did it take you by surprise how quickly it went from up there to down there? No. Really? No. Obviously, the ownership of Chelsea's changed, but I knew when I took the job, I kind of knew the premise that it was on. I think I said to you about timing, like the, the stars aligned or something aligned for me to, to get that job, and I was very understanding of that. But at the same time, I knew what that meant. And generally, managers of Derby for one year don't get the Chelsea job. And I felt probably felt like when things might get difficult very quickly they could change I'd probably been a player in that situation too yeah, to be fair yeah. for a few times um, but I, I didn't see any reason why it would be different in fact I felt I was a, a good fit for Chelsea at the time in terms of the position we're in with the ban I worked hard in that first year we had a relative success never going to get sort of sectioned off as proper success for Chelsea because they were used to so much and then when we when we made a lot of signings in the summer I knew the expectations were completely changed. I think I said that in the first podcast and they did. And I was under no illusions that it could change. And again, maybe some of that um, was part of me being um, so intense about that club because it was my club. And I, I think maybe sometimes a, a really great manager uh, said to me after I'd lost my job about a month or so later, he said, Frank, he said, us, you, us British managers, he said, we need to change our mindset. He said, we need to start thinking like these foreign managers and he said it in that way you know that's probably a generalization obviously but he said they move every two or three years they work hard in a period of time and they're intense or whatever they're, and they move in and they move on he said and then the next one comes along and it doesn't make them any worse a person or worse a coach it's just so I, he was probably was listening to me kind of talk about it with such passion and he was probably saying listen you know once the next one go in it a bit more clinical you know what do you need to do what do you need to do and, and, and if it was the case that Thomas Tuchel went I need to lift this group and he got some success and then he had his obviously ta tactical nous to take him to a Champions League final that's what he needed to do when I came to Everton I needed to lift this group and when we were in a bit of a rut I needed to change the way we were playing because it wasn't going to get us over the line and those are just parts of management and I think it was that the, when the manager said it to me with experience I was a bit like I, I like that I like that probably with Chelsea I took it so much on and I had this feeling that with a couple of results, I would probably be moving on. It was true. I was half right. And I know that for whatever reason. Um, but it was just part of the of my story there, I suppose. Well, that fits. I mean, one of Alex Ferguson's great premises was that the life cycle of any team is only ever four years. Mm. So he always attributed some of his success to the fact that the success he'd had afforded him the ability to plan a little bit longer than four years. Mm. So you can get rid of somebody mm. at a certain stage, knowing that you'll probably still be there in four years time. Mm. Mm. And so how do you get buy-in from above that gets people to sort of see it as a four year project rather than just that boom and bust cycle of one season wonders? I think you asked me something similar and I couldn't quite answer it last time. I'm probably better versed to answer it now. Yeah. Communication is key. And at the end of, end of my time at Chelsea, I lost communication with important people above me that I should have tried to keep more. It's one of my reflections on it because I think then that, that void is, a, is an issue that just becomes you know, the void of like when you don't call your mate for a while and you go, I can't call them now. And that's interesting because your big thing from that first podcast yeah. was yeah. communication yeah. above, below. You, yeah. we, said, you, we actually spoke about that phrase, losing the dressing room, didn't yeah. we? And you said, oh, communicate. In that situation, you need to communicate more than ever. And Absolutely. it sounds like... You yeah. maybe didn't do that. No, and when I listened back this morning, I, I was interested in that, and and it, it certainly wasn't just my fault, by the way, because I think that should be a two-way responsibility because you need to feel support, like you're saying about if you, how do you get like a long-term vision? Well, you better be supported back when it is a little bit tough because that's that's the reality of football, unless you're like Liverpool and City winning every game. But let's not forget, 
when those early stages of Liverpool come in here, some tough moments, Jurgen Klopp's first year before that, or Pep Guardiola, you know, nothing's perfect. They work through these and they have trust and sometimes the trust comes from their previous work and fair play to them because they can both go, I've done this and done this. I suppose at Chelsea, I didn't have a, a body of work to go, I've done this. So I, I suppose that maybe didn't work for me in that sense. But I counter that a little bit, that I think even when you look at someone like Klopp or even like Guardiola, mm. like in their early stages, I think they were still backed, weren't mm. they? Even So you look at someone like Klopp and how he was able to get rid of certain players, even though it hamstrung him in the short term, mm. if the stories are to be believed that they weren't buying into the way he wanted things done or mm. Guardiola getting rid of players at but Barcelona that, that quite comes, early. I agree. That comes back to my first part about timing. Yeah. Because I think, and, you know, they're obviously great managers. I'm not going to say they've got their no, lucky no, timing, sure. but I think if you want to make changes for instance your example there about players leaving you have to be able to at the time you want be able to move players out and people out yeah. at the right time as much as important it is to move people in because if they're not aligned and as i said cultural is a funny thing but you must have non-negotiables you must have an idea and a, and a feeling of the type of person you want in the building the type of play you want in the building yeah. and if you feel that's wrong and you are being backed with it you must be able to get them out uh, or bring ones in that are right and that that has to be aligned so the, the communication thing all the time to, to sell a vision in, in high level Premier League football over four years is not an easy one because I think it's so intense you have to try and do your best uh, with it here at Everton at the moment we're we're in, in, a, in a situation that's, that's different for me and every managerial job is different but I came here and it, and it was very clear that straight away we need to fight on a lot of fronts to make this club where we want it to be. And it wasn't just me saying it coming in. A lot of people were saying it, people that care about the club deeply. And it's like, okay, which bit do we go for? So there is an idea of a vision here. And I really hope that we can stick to it through the tough times because they will be here for us. We saw that last year. We were in a, a whisker of going down into the championship. And so we have to just respect that for what it is and go, okay, well, we, we better make some changes. And it's not just about what play we're bringing in this window. It's also about every little thing that we do to get that long-term thing in, that plan to bring it into practice. So can I ask you a question about, it's an idea a mate of mine did from a different sport, was that when he was offered the job as a head coach, one of the first things he did before he accepted it was he got the board to, so he did what we call pre-mortems. He said, what are you going to do if I lose 10 games on the bounce? What am I going to do when the players start uh, going to the press about me? What are you going to do when the fans turn on me? Mm-hmm. And he got them to almost identify it before, because he had the idea that you're never more successful than before you take before yeah. you play your first game. Yeah. And the board sat there and were saying, oh, we'll be patient, we'll back you. Well, as long as communication's good. So they almost gave him a blueprint of how they were going to deal with it. So he went in not promising success, mm. but he was almost saying, I guarantee there'll be failures along the way mm. and got them to do that. So that when they inevitably came, he almost had that, contract with them to say yeah. you promised you were going to be patient we knew this had happened is that ever possible when you go for like a job like you've got at Everton that you can have that conversation with the decision makers before you ever take it because I get that you're trying to sell yourself for yeah. the job but there's also got to be an element of realism to it yeah uh, I'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the 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 idea of it is um is a good one and and maybe a softer version of what you just said explained there of your friend's story is possible and I I do think probably what way you in what way you're coming into the job you know I'm I'm guessing again but a a manager that comes in off the back of trophies and can kind of go hang on what are you going to do if it doesn't work perfectly and they might go yeah well we trust you and we're with you I think some jobs you know 
you go into an interview, you don't feel that strength or that power to be able to sit there and go, hang on, I'm going to interview you a little bit. <laughs> it's a flip. Um, so but what I will say is that you, you do want a good feeling in the room as myself from the from the other side so I, I what i did feel when i came into this job at everton particularly uh, and i felt actually at derby when i met that their owner mel morris when i first went there was uh, a good feeling and 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 it means nothing i didn't ask for that contract and um maybe i'll try that one down the line at some stage but i did get a feeling of, of support from from people that were in the room in my interview in what way what does that look um, like in tangible terms uh, tangible is not an easy one but i just felt a feeling of um um, when I say support, how do I elaborate on that? It, um, there wasn't so much tangible. It was just there were the important people in the room. I don't want to start naming people upstairs at this club, but that that I could feel were really ready to to work with me and see what direction I could take the club in, and okay. were, were quite excited about that. Um, and we're offering that support, giving off the vibe of that support, and I loved that because, in honesty, when I came to Everton. It felt like a long way from London to Liverpool. Like, I'm a Chelsea boy as seen London and it's a club where I looked at had difficulties. The week before I'm going, I'm seeing a bit of unrest and I'm seeing things and, you know, 13, 14 without a win or whatever it was. So there were a lot of things I was putting together. Um, but I, but firstly, I saw this great club, Everton, with an amazing history and what a challenge that is. And then when I met the people that sort of made the decisions at the club, I actually was really um, pleased with how they were kind of going, this is the direction we want to go in. We know where we're at. There's a lot we want to do in a positive way. And there were actually a lot of people that really cared about the football club, which I, which I really liked. And I was like, okay, that, that's that's for me. And and since I've been here, I've found that to be ongoing in, in a short period of time. And, and actually, you know what? I think you, you really do need that if you want to be successful. And you can't rely on it forever. Results will always be what you'd be judged by and actually how you work every day. But at the moment, I think um, I'm starting to see more that I want to do. I'm starting to feel that support come into action. We may not see it on the pitch in the next three months or six months, but I do hope certainly that we do see it going forward. And I'm, I'm certainly all in for that because um, that's how I am. But there are also a lot of people at this club that are all in and, and are probably aware that there's some things that have happened here before that we need to get a lot better at. Can we explore then the power of this time away from the game that put you into a place of clarity for mm. taking the Everton job? I suppose first thing, you know, when you, I don't know how it works when you lose your job as a manager, but when you get the news that you're losing your job, how quickly do you turn that from a negative into a positive for you personally? How hard is that period? It's a tough period. It's a difficult period. Um, a lot of people who do my job are very, very driven, very passionate. You have a lot of pride in what you do. And, and those things will take a hit. So you do go through that kind of... Did you of have the tools to deal with it? Because when was the last failure in your life, like, on a professional level? On a professional level, nothing no. like that. No, nothing like that. And it's big news. It's Chelsea. I live, at the time, um, barely a mile from Stamford Bridge. And it was COVID time, so I couldn't travel anywhere. There's no get out. I love walking the dog, so I walked the dog. And you just feel Chelsea everywhere, and you've just left. You know, the morning I knew I was going in to leave Chelsea, I walked the dog knowing I'd already got the call, the message, can you meet us? I went for an hour. And a Chelsea fan stopped me, went, you're doing great, come on, keep going, and all that. I felt like I'd wait for breaking news in about an hour and a half, <laughs> and, you'll, and you'll see it differently. So it, like, it's some parts of it are just practically very difficult. And there's that sort of period of time where it is tough because... You know, if you live your life by it and you're passionate about it and it gets taken away from you, you 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 know, you have to go through a bit of a process. I did. I did. I don't know how long it was. I was out of a job for, what, a year. 
and you do fluctuate a lot from some moments where you get not, not ang- you get a bit angry, you kind of go, well, what, what could I have done? Why did that person do that kind of thing and that stuff? You better go over that quite quickly because that's a bit of a nasty sort of cycle, I think. Um, and then you get moments where you quite enjoy it and you go, oh, I'm out of a job. this is great actually, settle down a little bit and I can you know, go on holiday, I don't have to go to work every day and I'm fortunate enough that I can take stock for a bit. And then you just have sort of phases of, I need to get back in, I need to get back in. Okay, I need to take the right one. Uh, I'm enjoying time on my own. I'm actually enjoying thinking about it. Um, and so it was a period of that. And, and I, I probably went through that cycle nicely. So I was really, really ready to work by the time the Everton job came up. Because we, we exchanged messages about one of the episodes on high performance with Eddie Jones. Mm. And I thought it was really interesting that you said you loved it when you were in work mm. because you could totally relate to what he was saying. But now you said, now I'm out of work. I see it in a slightly different way. Mm. So I'm really interested for people listening to this who maybe are not doing the thing they always want to do mm. or they're in a lull or they're having some, a break or whatever and it's not necessarily their decision to do it. The value of actually stepping back, the value of not being intense all the time. What, what were the big... Um, how did that change your mindset? I it, it changed my mindset a, a little bit in terms of um, balance, life balance. And I promised myself and I promised my family that when I go back in, I will not have that intensity that I had in the last month at Chelsea because it wasn't that wasn't that healthy, if I'm honest, for anybody. And I spent a lot of hours trying to solve problems because that's how I am. But they were they were slightly. It misguided. also doesn't make you better at your job by being no, intense. No, it, it doesn't. You know, it's an element of it. I like I like intensity. I kind of feel that it's just how I naturally am. But you go beyond the point where it's. I think it's a negative on yourself. In what way do you mean, Frank? Well, so what were your family seeing you do differently when? Um, spending more hours working right. and I certainly got to a point where I was probably trying to solve too much and then you, you, you probably you know you, you, you're draining yourself of energy and as much as it's important to get to tomorrow's session it's also important to bounce into work the next day and be the one that's the happy one and I had a little period of that at the end of Chelsea and so I, I was you still enjoying it at the end no I wasn't enjoying it in the last few weeks and that, and that, and that, and that happened really quickly so I really enjoyed my time working as a whole with reflection, but I have to, I have to wear that one and take responsibility for that. There's no one else but me that, that was in that position. And I, I think if you were to look back and go like your question about should you have taken the job, people go, oh, you weren't experienced enough. I don't quite see that. I don't see that. I, I felt like I was absolutely ready to take that job and I think I proved it in year one. If I look back and go, was I experienced? I go, when it got really tough and you were right under pressure, I'm not sure I would have changed the results, by the way. I still might be sitting there in the same situation. But personally, I went solving every problem. And I think that's one thing that I would take back and go, well, Frank, you're not going to solve our um, high press, mid press, low press, goal kicks in in one day. You're not going to do it. So what do you need to solve right now? Okay, we need to get the mood up. We need to lift it. We need to do so. You know, lots of uh, solutions. The original question was almost like in that year out, I kind of got, okay, balance for me, also balance for my family because that's not nice for them. And as as I get a bit older, I start to think a lot more about that. I start to think, you know, you feel not so much like you'll live forever. And as much as I'm still very driven at work, I start feeling, okay, a month after I left Chelsea, I had a son. And, you know, I actually go, wow, I'm going to actually be at home with this son. And every other uh, child I've had, I've been working. I drove back from Derby to see Patricia to be born to go back and we play Brentford the next day, you know. And, and so I was sort of blessed in that, in that way. And then you just start sort of seeing those things and that can change your perspective. It's just you're evolving again, aren't you? I think in a year off... Even though it wasn't my choice, when I look back on the big scheme of things, I'm, I might go, actually, yeah, it was important I did that. Have you heard our chats with Johnny Wilkinson? Yeah. Because he would just say, like, explore. Like, explore that period of 
flying and doing well at Chelsea, explore that period where, mm. you know, instead of seeing it as a negative, see it as a period of exploration mm. when you were struggling to get your message across or, the, you know, had issues mm. with people below or above you. But equally, explore being at home with your, your newborn son. Like, yeah. in a weird way, how can it ever be a bad thing to have been given that period sure. with your boy, which you will never be able to do again? You can't yeah. work for 10 years and then go, on oh, now I'm going to spend some time with you and get to know you because... That's why I love gone. listening to other people speak and love listening to your podcast because it takes all types. And the Johnny Wilkinson um, method or approach is not mine by nature. It's not mine. I, I, I don't want to explore. I want to get back into work and realise what I might have done better. You know, that's my first thing. And really now when I had that year off and I kind of think that I, I start to understand and that's why I like to listen to those things. Because when Johnny Wilkinson speaks, if I'm honest, when I listen to that podcast, a few things are quite extreme for me. And I, I'm not being, I'm going, fair play. That's fantastic from his point of view. But then you take bits out and you go, yeah, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe there's a scowl. Johnny's there and I'm there somewhere. Maybe I should meet him somewhere in the middle and explore. I'm not good at sitting and taking in time and just, I'm always, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm running for the next thing. And sometimes that explore thing means actually enjoy it that period enjoy it and just maybe learn a little bit and take a back seat i mean i'm really taken with this idea that that you've seen your son being born and it's the first time you've had a chance just to be around and do what a lot of parents would see as natural of having that time to bond mm. and support your wife did it make you look back on like the birth of your other children and maybe the quality of life that you'd had i know you were successful professionally mm. and maybe think that it had taken something from you personally um not, not really, because I just understand it for what it is. And so I've got two older daughters now that are 16 and uh, 15 and 16. And um, you know, I loved my football career and I was all in on it. So I can't imagine anything in my sort of latter 20s in terms of my professional to personal balance being any different. It was just what it was. So I, I, I don't think, feel like I, I lost out. My life was that. And there were a lot of other things around that that just became circumstance of my life. When I had Patricia and I, I'm working with uh, Derby, and if I'm honest, I've never been as settled in my life, personal life, as I am with Christine. Yeah. So happy with this moment. So it... We did everything we could to make that as perfect as it could be. So it was fine. I joke about the Brentford thing, but it wasn't a problem. You know, I was delighted to get back. I went out, we beat Brentford 3-1. I came back to see it for a couple of days. You know, life is good enough. I can't complain on those things. And, and I've found, you know, I adore um, all my children, but Patricia, you know, we've had, she's nearly four now. But with Freddie, it was just another version of doing it. And, and as I say, sometimes I have to check myself because I am... I'm in the room, but I'm not there. I do do that because of how I am. I think I'm a thinker, an overthinker. I'm thinking maybe about football, or, you know, my next job or something else. Um, and sometimes someone like listen to Johnny Wilkinson say things like that make me absolutely check myself. And, and my wife, Christine, does it at home. She says to me sometimes, like, she like jokingly would literally say to me, stop thinking about your next job because you know when you're in your next job, you began wouldn't mind going back to that time when I was sitting <laughs> on the sofa and, yeah. and could relax a little bit. And and she was right. And I and I kind of started to get there and then I got a job. So does <laughs> that, that the then, weird thing. does that then melt away? Because it feels to me like we're having a conversation where you have a little bit more freedom. It almost mm. feels like that first conversation we had, it was like the only way through is intensity. Mm. Whereas now maybe you've seen that there's, there's other ways to be successful. Yeah. So does that disappear though once you get back in? Or do you have to fight hard to keep hold of the things that you learned and not let them slip through your fingers? Yeah, you have to fight hard, definitely, because the bubble, this bubble here, and especially the situation I came into, which was a relegation battle, prolonged, a few months, yeah. um, it can easily suck you in. How do you do that then? Um, 
uh, I, I managed to do it. And I'm not saying now I become this big relaxed manager that comes in and everything's fine. But what I will say is a lot of people this summer I was away and met, met a lot of Evertonians, football fans, and the, the thing they always say, wow, it must have been so much pressure. How tough was that? And it was, but it really isn't as pressurised as I felt as the Chelsea manager. And that's all my own doing. That was all my own doing of what, what the Chelsea thing meant to me, how much I wanted to prove, probably that I felt a bit vulnerable about I could lose, you know, expectations. Whereas here, I, I may be just as vulnerable in many other ways. We could have got relegated. But in myself, I was a little bit more like, and I'm not saying I was cool as a cucumber. I wasn't. At Crystal Palace at half time and 2 0 down, like the writing was on the wall potentially. But I didn't feel that same feeling and I felt a little bit, and it might be 20% from where I was. I'm not saying I've, I've changed, I'm fine. I'll be doing another podcast in a year and telling you the new me. It's not, it's not that, but it's just a, a little bit where I've managed to kind of um, find that bit better balance. So even in the tough, tough moments in Everton last year, which were, there was much more jeopardy for me here at Everton to, to be the manager that took this club down than it was to, to not make the top four with Chelsea. You know, economically for the club, for, for me, you know, there was a lot more on it. But personally, in my own world, I was a bit more like, okay, this is the order I've come in. I'm going to prioritise this, this, this. This is what I can do. This is what I can affect. And the biggest thing is I better be a positive influence because we're losing more games than I've ever lost at Chelsea or Derby even. So I had to get reevaluate quickly about how I wanted to approach things. You've just touched on an area that I, I spoke to a, a few people in football that that watched with wonder during that period and saying that... The only time that they can remember you losing is in semi-finals and mm. finals and big games. And then they're seeing you win, like lose three games on the bounce. Mm. And what they were intrigued looking from outside in was, how are you keeping your energy levels high? How mm. are you managing to keep that optimism, mm. despite the fact that it must have been the first time that you've mm. gone through a period like that? So, yeah. so that, what did you do? Um, I worked on it. I... Um you're right, it's something I wasn't so used to. Um, you need a lot of support. And when I say that, you need really good staff in the building. My staff are brilliant. And some days you can be the low one. You don't want to show it to the players, but you can be a bit like, you know, we've got beaten yesterday. What's the solution? This game's coming next. And, you know, we, we, we have to have those conversations in the office behind me. But you better not show that face when you go to the players. And I don't mind saying it out loud because no one's stupid. Everyone understands it. But when, you, when you're working with the players, for instance, we lost at Burnley, which was a terrible night for us went from 2-1 up to 3-2 down put us really under pressure on a Wednesday night it was raining it was a tough night we had Manchester United at 12 o'clock on the Saturday morning 12.30 and those two days the pressure was on but I sort of put my game head on and said right I need to be more than anything I need to be the positive one and the really focused one so that's why I think football and management is never this written you can't have this this uh this philosophy, this project, this is how I deal with a season from A to B to C and then we win or whatever. It has to be, okay, you're going to have to compromise, you have to change, you're going to have to, and that's the magic, is what, can you feel the moment? And for me, and that in that two or three days was a really testing time for me because I actually sat here and saw on TV that my job was under threat here. I'd only been here, and that came up on the rolling news. I was just about to go and do the media and it came on the news and I was like, oh great, that's the mindset you want to be in when you've got to go yeah. and speak to the, the ones down there. But when I look back, and as I say, where I'm better now, I think, and I've probably just got better at dealing with it, it didn't throw me off too much. I'm very determined to get What that would that have done up. to the old Frank Lampard from a couple of years before? I think probably I would have, I would have taken it on board in, 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 a, in a negative way and I would have gone into my press conference a bit more, you know, because, you know, the press, they're ready for those moments. They want to test you. Probably would have had a couple more answers for them. Um, maybe my team talk might have felt different. My clarity of thought might have felt 
felt a little bit different. The most important thing in that part is that when you're losing games, if you're not the positive one, and positivity is not always for everyone, you can't come in if a poor performance and be Mr. Happy. But at the same time, you better have a solution or an answer for it. Because if, you, if you're not positive and you're giving good vibes, and if you haven't got a solution or an answer, then I'm not sure what your job is at that point. You've got to be, you've got to be doing something for it. And how did you know what to say? Because this was a very new situation for you. You'd never been in a relegation scrap really as a play. You hadn't been there in at Derby or at Chelsea. Mm. So how did you how did you decide on the messaging for the players? Uh, I went game by game, and that's that was the beautiful challenge of it. And at some stage, you're literally probably going into a meeting. This is how I was uh, the day before a game. Say it was pre Manchester United, pre Chelsea. These big games that we have to win, and. Two hours before the meeting or the night before the meeting, you might not know whether you're going in with a stick to beat them or a carrot to give them. If you're delivering a meeting, particularly if it's the stick, we need to be better at this. You need to be better at that now. And I did that before we played Chelsea. It was a time where I felt that it needs to be a strong chat. In other games, it was more of a, come on, we, you know, we can do this. Be confident. I know you're good. we've got good players in the room. Those are just choices as a manager. 
and they, need, they needed a little bit of a reaction and I felt like it was something that I needed to say. I wasn't quite, I wasn't delighted with my language after I'd said, a, Christine said to me about Amsham, why did you say, can I, I can say it, bollocks. I said they lack bollocks and she was right and it wasn't exactly what I meant because I know they're good lads who wanted to do well but I think it was important to, to I felt it was important to say something punchy and I regretted that side of it but I didn't regret the tone right. generally okay. and, um, and, and, I, and I think it's also, I, I think a lot about, you know, when you're a club and when you rely on the fans and our fan base are incredible right through this period. If they travel down to London and see the performance they've just seen, am I gonna, how many times am I going to stand there and go, oh, we're all right, you know, it's all positive and it's all good. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not just doing it for that, but you've got to take all those things into account when you're in this role and say, okay, no, you know what, I'm going to say it because I think the, the few thousand are driving back down the motorway for five hours, probably thinking it. And so I, when you, you did know, that, did you go back into the dressing room and say to us, this is what I've said no, and this is what I meant? No. no. I, never, I never mentioned it again. Right. <laughs> and did they? No, not to me. And then you had that brilliant end to the season where you beat Chelsea and then you had the, the game at home that kept you in mm. the Premier League. 2-0 mm. down at half-time. Yeah. Would you mind sharing with us what that half-time was like, how you dealt with it, the conversations that were had? Because I think... Um, Again, for people watching this who are not involved in football but need to have an impact in the workplace, mm. these these moments can be difficult. How did you how did you approach it? Yeah, I mean, I, it was one of those where we conceded the second and it was just shambles of a goal. So I had probably about five minutes of the first half to think about half time, and you and you do, you know, what this is pivotal. This is my job, probably the most important part of your job, I would say. So my my feeling was that it wasn't a tactical point I'd made the tactical change which I was going to stick with so forget the tactics and I said this to the players forget the tactics we're 4-3-3 now Delhi, come on because here's your moment Delhi. <laughs> you know come in and and he did he come in and really produced individually and then I just kind of went on the fact that lads there's there's two choices here we either carry on and when we we go down and we've got to go to Arsenal and try and get something or we show spirit and understanding what this place can be like when we can change it and we get a goal and then the game changes instantly. And it was it was pure. I said, again, tactics are not important at this point. I can't see anything that's going to change this game. Only you can do it. So I, I, don't, I don't think I'm taking huge credit for that one because absolutely the players did it and the fans did it. By the way, the stadium just, the minute we scored the first one, I'm, I can be sometimes a half, a glass half empty man or I might not get a second or they might score another. You, you're assessing the game at all points. But that was a night where really you go, oh, something's happening here. And then bum, bum, it happened. How important was it for you to speak directly to the fans? Which I, again, watching from afar, that felt such a smart move to me. I don't want this to come across as being cynical, but if at that point the biggest value to you is to get the fans on the side, right, to make Goodison Park a fortress. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not... Um, yeah, and I think it's cynical. I think it's part of your job. And um, there, there, are, there are so many ways to, to do it. And it doesn't all have to be contrived or set up. I think a lot of it has to be natural because fans will see through things and particularly fans in this part of the world, as far as I see it, they're very, very savvy to their football, Evertonians, Liverpool fans, you know, it's, it's a football is life. It's their everything. So they don't miss much, you know? So if I, if I came in and tried to tell a lie and that's kind of my point about speaking after Palace, I think a lot of fans will kind of go, yeah, I'll take that if he's going to say what we feel a bit. And I can't guess what they all feel, but I understood that from the place we were in, um, it was a difficult time when I came in and it had to change the feeling. And what I did get naturally when I first came in at the club was a positive bounce. And then I just felt like I wanted to, for the fans to see how much it meant to me because I am an all-in person, you know, like, and uh, I don't know what you should be. I don't, they shouldn't expect anything different. But my reaction is, 
I want to be on the pitch after a game if we win and I want to walk around Goodison and say thanks very much and feel that. I get a buzz off that. And But I would also think, that I think if I'm a fan, that's what I want to say. Not the old handshake down the tunnel, see you next week. That's important to me. I also realise very quickly as a club of, a, of strong, um, in, it's so strong in the community here. And I, I'm not stupid. I saw that and I loved it. It just started to build and it wasn't all me. It wasn't all genius. It wasn't all thought out. But I tried to just be honest when I spoke in press conferences. I tried to celebrate a win. I tried to be honest about a defeat. I tried to defend the club when we were when I felt we were hard done by with a few decisions. That always goes down well <laughs> with the fans. But, but don't they just want honesty, though, from a manager? They just want to be taken on the journey with you. Yeah, and so there's the balance, though. You have to do that, but you've also got to come to work with these lads. So if you're seen as coming off the game and going, oh, I'm going to give the players a bit of stick here because that's what the fans want to hear. I think you're done. It's very, it's a very quick end. You can probably criticise the performance. You know, the players have performed badly today and I think they appreciate that honesty, but th th there's a balance to that. But again, it was, you know, in the time I was here, we, we, we did enough good things and I think the fans saw enough good and Goodison particularly uh, and the fact that, you know, we were all working hard, myself, the staff, the feeling changed very quickly and that, that felt quite natural. And I'm not relying on that forever, by the way, because... You know, you, you can't, you know, being, you, you don't want to be seen as, oh, you know, he's great at sort of playing the part, but what's he actually doing? Because that's always the thing you need to do first. But I want to be, I want to be good at both. I want to be, I want people to feel like I'm in, I'm managing and coaching their football club, that they like what I'm trying to do. They like the honesty or, you know, the, the celebrating or whatever. And as long as it's natural and it is for me, it's not, it's not put on, then I think it's fine. And when you had that, that defeat a couple of games before the end of the season, which put you right back in it. Mm. I remember I was trying to convince you to go to Norwich, wasn't I? And you were saying to me, you know, there's lots of reasons to take it and a few reasons to not take it. But I remember you saying to me, listen, the next job for me has to be the right job. Like mm. I need to, did you stay awake at night thinking, is this the right job at that point? Like, were you worried about yourself at any point in that? Because you don't want to lose two jobs on the bounce, do you? I weirdly didn't. Really? Oh, I, I had lots of worries on a professional note of like, I just want to win and I want to do it. I, I didn't do that kind of, oh, what will happen if I don't too much? Luckily, I didn't, because if you did think about that a lot, I think it would affect you. Maybe that's more my, my security and where I am at the minute. Because if, I, if, if we had got relegated and I had, you know, I, know what, I know what the consequences would have been, but I didn't hang on it too much. Comes back to that freedom thing again, doesn't it? That yeah, maybe, a, maybe a few years ago you would have been twisted up. Yeah, it was it was a strange whirlwind for me though, Jake, because I, I, I from being out of a job to within a few days, oh, I'm going to Everton. Like, it's crazy. My life changed completely. Now, just, I, I actually saw it as an exciting challenge, and it was actually I could box it off as a, as a short term one as well. Because even though I had a longer term contract, as, in a sense, I knew what the permutations might be if you don't. So I, I kind of was probably caught up in that that challenge. Just going, I'm going to attack this. I didn't really think about the. It might have slipped into my head occasionally, but not, not so much. Not so much. Most of the players are the same. Mm. You're the same, the stadium's the same, the fans are the same, but you've got to make sure your last season isn't recreated. Have you managed to work out why a team with as much talent as this one has ended up in the position that it ended up in and how you stop it happening again? There's, there's talent through the Premier League, yeah. for starters. So I don't think anything should be a given. And I came into the club at a time when it was sort of starting to take course of where we were going to be in the season and um, we became a big I think one of the biggest stories of the potential relegation fight because of our history and because we were Everton and people were looking at it and going wow here's going to be a story but I think that was a red herring I think the reality was we were where we were because that's where we are yeah. you know the, the, the league doesn't lie 
Um, so, so was it a ta- was it talent that had you there, or, or was there something else that needed to be fixed? Um, there, there, there are things that need to be fixed generally. I think. I mean, if you're talking talent, you're talking about how do we improve the squad, the recruitment policy, and all those things. And yeah, we need to look at that, of course, because every team, no team wants to stand still or, or go backwards. And you know, uh, we want to improve that. And now it's my job to be part of the team that makes that better. And that's that's clear. And I've got no qualms in saying that every team will want to improve, and we, we'll look at areas of the squad imbalance. We lost five players straight away at the end of the season are out of contract or going back on loan squad looks different okay where is it balanced where is it not so those are questions and then the first thing again is you know going back to my hard work one what, what we're going to do about it so say we you know we don't bring in players my job is not there um to um cry my eyes out too much about things in here my job is to work with what i've got uh, and respect and I'm, I'm happy with the squad we got do I want to make it better yes do I want to make us better yes but we have to be careful here I think with Everton now of where our expectations are we have to go okay we were there for a reason let's make a step forward in terms of results and in terms of performance and let's do it together and then let's keep working in, in that direction and I just see it as that that's the work now and you have a very different team around you to the one that you had at Chelsea mm. more experience um, in part yeah, I think it's it's really interesting stuff um, how people analyse it, and I'm talking about within the game because I'm seen as a young coach, so there's a there's some ticks and there's some crosses against that straight away, um, and my my assistant um, manager Joe Edwards, who I work with at Chelsea, is seen as a young coach. He's younger than me, so there's ticks and crosses. The ticks are he's won the Champions League with Chelsea. Last year, he was part of the first team staff. He's won everything he could win in the academy at Chelsea, all these things. So uh, Paul Clement got brought into my staff because he has different ticks and different strengths and and one of them would be experience. And for me personally, the managerial experience, so that's a great little thing on certain little things that come up to sort of speak about. Ashley Cole comes in again, I'm saying the similar thing, but you know, we're seen as a young staff. There's nothing wrong with that. In terms of my staff, I think we um, attack the day every day. We, we've all got our strengths and I, I respect everybody's strengths within the group. And if they're good at things, then you do it, no problem. Chris Jones is one I haven't mentioned I've worked with since I started managing at Derby and I worked with as a player at Chelsea. Paul Clements arrived to maybe bring it some experience. Yeah, that, that's great. But um, as I say, there's a few Champions League medals within my team as well. Not to, I'm not shouting out from the rooftops, but I, I trust in them, is my point. So how did you decide who was in the new team for this job? You have to decide what you think is the, 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 the team that complements each other the best, that will move forward in the best direction, will support me. Sounds a little bit like you're putting yourself at the top of a tree. But I mean, I suppose you are because you're the one that lives or dies by it in the end. But support me in the things that I'm not so strong at, need help in. You know, just you need a team. This is a modern day football team. There's so much to it. You know, you, you could lots of team have more staff than what we have. We walked in and Duncan Ferguson was here. He's, he's moved on now. He's owner called, and Duncan was brilliant for me in three three months last season. Incredible. I understand it at the club. A different viewpoint to what myself and the staff had in a good way. He could give his opinions on players and all those things and an icon at the place, legend. So those things are all just there to hopefully complement each other and give you the best chance of success. And you all have to get on and you all have to have a similar, like we talk about alignment, you don't have to have exactly the same views. It's good to have different views, but you've got to be able to work together. And if you disagree in, in the room about something, you better be able to walk out and be, be mates and be good together after that because this job will challenge you. Brilliant. We've reached the point of our quick-fire questions, Frank. 
One of these will be different from the first time around. What are your three non-negotiables? I'm just going to repeat, obviously, I think what I said before. I, I actually didn't get this far on the bike earlier, so I don't know what I said last what? time. You never I, got I to did, the end of your I did, 50, I did 50 minutes and it was like... I, I was, that was like, the best bit the last time. Well, let's see what they are now then. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, well, definitely hard work. I mean, I, I don't that know was one of them, yeah. and say that. And, and yeah. I know that. And I've heard some great ones you've done. And I think generally, like, if you're not going to work hard, how are you going to get to yeah. where you want to be? I think um, uh, respect... Um, in the workplace, um, having respect for everybody around you, from your teammate, from me and my staff. And it's something I worked hard. I realised that this in this building, particularly at Everton, there are Evertonians everywhere. You know, this is part of the beauty of the club. But you've got to respect everyone in the building because the person, you, your top goal scorer, you may find that yeah, somebody who works in a medical room is just as important to them in a different yeah. way. So I think that, that thing is a non-negotiable of having respect across the board. The third one, I could say discipline. But then, I, then I'm sound like I'm running a tight ship, and I, I think in the modern day, don't we want to enjoy the workplace as well? So, you know, I'm, that, that's a balance I'm always trying to find. That's not really non-negotiable, is it? But I think you're talking about things that are important to you. Yep. Um, and I think discipline's an important thing. But I always remember in my playing days, I don't remember many tactics or many tactical instructions. I remember when I felt good and I enjoyed my work. And so I, I would love the players to be able to feel like that. Happiness in, in this place, happiness. That's yeah. non-negotiable. Come and there be happy. Can I ask you, just as an aside, like when you describe your experience here at Everton, it, like the example that really resonates from the first interview was when you described you, you like growing to your grandparents in the East End and mm. being part of that community, mm. you know, where everyone had each other's back, you all look out for each other, mm. was the way you described it. Mm. How, how similar does that resonate with you? Uh, a lot, yeah. And I, I didn't, didn't expect it. My, my memories, not so much of coming to Everton, but coming to Liverpool, I used to get so much stick. <laughs> Chelsea played Liverpool like 10 times a year at one period. And so I'm not, I'm not, you know, I wasn't sectioning off the whole of Liverpool in one idea, but I, I've come to the club with a real, I was really uh, interested to see how the club would feel about me, the fans, the community, and how I, how I would feel back. And it's been, it's been the most pleasing thing for me, how I felt um, at this club, working within the club, uh, going to Goodison, going around Liverpool, meeting fans, travelling to America pre-season, meeting fans out there. I, I felt so quickly part of the family unit of, Ever of Everton and Evertonians. Um, and that's huge. I, I, I've been absolutely overwhelmed with that side of things. And it just makes you want to give back. You know, it really makes you want to do well here because whenever you speak to them, you know, whatever our expectations are, it's like you just beat those those twice this year we were playing Liverpool. You better if you can win those games, that'll do me. Or this or that. It's just such a, a heartfelt passion within this club that they they're very forward and giving to you. Uh, and I've I've really appreciated that side of it. It's made me feel really really kind of um, I don't know interlinked with the club straight away, naturally. So next quick fire is where were you? Where are you? And where are you going? Is this a new one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this one's a bit abstract, but I think you'll quite like it. <laughs> you've, got, you've got to send me these beforehand, surely. Where were you? Um, when? Like, where, where, where would you mean? Well, let's go back to when we last spoke. Where were you yeah. then? Where are you now? And where are you going? Uh, well, where, where was I? I was, if I'm honest, I was going into year two at Chelsea. Excited, proud to, to be managing the club but also probably in a place at that point where I was a bit like, okay, what's next year going to look like? And it was very different from year one. So probably I knew expectations were going to go through. So I, I would have had some, um, not fears is the right word, but some 
you know, I'd be questioning, okay, where's this going to go? And if you'd have asked me, do you think you'll be, my honest answer, do you think you'll be at Chelsea for the next five years and have a monopoly? Of Brit- I probably would have said, no, not really. I don't see that. So I wouldn't, so that, that would have been a bit of jeopardy for me. I couldn't have given you an answer for when we last spoke. But, you know, I don't want to sound too negative about it because I was in a good place managing Chelsea and we were just about to buy players and year two, it was so, it was pretty good. Where am I now? I think, you, I hope you can probably get it from me that I'm really enjoying my work. Um, so the the only the only thing that now is is difficult for me in any way is when I miss my children and miss Christine if we're not together all the time because I was fortunate to have that for a year, but in terms of the workplace and my determination to do well with at this club, I'm in a really good place. I lo- I love coming here to work every day. I love the staff I'm working with. I want to be as good as I can be, so that's a good place for me to be professionally now. Where will I get to? Where are you going? I've come here, we've got a new stadium coming here in the next two years. I want to be able to manage this club to success and make us better on the pitch, take us into a new stadium um, and do as well as I can in the job. And then outside of that, I want to you know, see um, my children grow, be happy at home and everybody happy and healthy. I, I touched on it earlier, I really do. I think we're all here, I know everyone in the room, but yourself, Chad, I know what you, how you feel about your children and those things. And for me, it just gets stronger all the time, all my children. So that's hopefully... They stay well. Nice. What is your greatest strength and what's your biggest weakness? I'm resilient. I'm resilient. I think I found it out in the in some of my work experiences from being a player to being a manager. I'm, I'm very resilient naturally. Um, my weakness is probably impatient to get to where I want to get to. And the final one, Frank, what's your one final message to live a high-performance life? I think is you have to be... Um, very focused on what you what you where you want to get to and have a clear idea and vision and then you have to be ready to to move and evolve with that because I think there are there are no simple answers to it. I listen to so many of your podcasts and everyone gives a really interesting variation of that answer, don't they? And th- th- so there there isn't one. Every everybody's looks different for whatever relative reason. Like why should if we look at the people I keep mentioning, Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola is this incredible because we all see it. It's all there. It's tangible. We go there. They've won this. There's people that are working at so many different levels of sport that are performing re- at really high levels in their own world and it looks completely different and maybe we don't, they don't even get on our radars. So I think just to stay focused and keep working hard and uh, keep moving in a forward direction. Brilliant. Damien. Jake. You know, I think the standout for me, right, Damien, is how serene Frank is, like how relaxed he is in that environment. And I think this is a great reminder that, you know, things that are hard for us are not always bad for us. And let me say that again for people listening, things that are hard for us are not necessarily bad for us. I think that losing his job at Chelsea, I think the hard times that he went through, I think being out of work for a period of time has given him an ability to not grip so tightly onto what he has. You know, I sort of feel like the Frank that we initially spoke to when he was at Chelsea was like this stiff, rigid guy. He was so desperate to be successful that he had a certain way of doing things and he wasn't able, probably through fear, to let go of those things. But I think that he still remains the winner he was on the football field. He remains the guy who has that deep desire to do well, but he's now realising that being rigid and gripping on tightly is not necessarily going to get him there. He's also brilliantly self-reflective, isn't he? Like that bit where he talks about the fact that he didn't communicate properly with those above him at Chelsea. You know, that is such important self-reflection, don't you think? Absolutely, Jake. I think that's a really smart point. I think it's been such a real privilege 
to get to meet Frank again and to listen to his insights and his experiences, especially from when things did go wrong for him at Chelsea. You know, people go through psychometric tests, they go through training courses to understand how do they cope under pressure. And I think Frank's insights that he's gleaned there are more valuable than any training or psychometric test can offer us, that when he's come under pressure, he's realised that he's descended to his level of becoming insular, you know, stop communicating, trying to solve too many problems. And now he's recognised that that's how he responded. That almost sowed the seeds of what eventually happened to him at the end at Chelsea. Now, those lessons can only make you stronger, can make you better. It reminded me, there's a great story that uh, the former CEO of GE, Jack Welsh, told that early on in his career, he made a huge cock-up that nearly resulted in in a factory being blown up. And he expected that he was going to get sacked on the back of it. And his manager said to him, he said, I'm not going to sack you. I'll just give you the most expensive training lesson you could ever wish for. And I think we're often too quick to write off people for what is perceived as a failure. You know, if they've sacked at a club or they haven't been a success in one particular environment. When the reality is that when you engage in the reflection that Frank's described to us here, you become so much better, so much stronger, so much more self-aware. And for him to share that with us, I think smacks of real self-confidence there and self-assurance and high levels of self-esteem that he's willing to let us in and understand that. Listen, Damien, I fully agree. I'm so pleased that we, we had Frank Lampard on the podcast. Frank, I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking like this. And I know that you know this isn't a conversation about football, but lots of football fans will come to this conversation because of who's on it and I just want to let you know that we are getting messages weekly from Premier League players, Premier League managers, Premier League coaches, Premier League CEOs and staff. Um, They're listening to high performance, they're using it in their everyday lives and I'm excited to tell you that there are plenty more guests coming on from the Premier League over the next few weeks and months so watch this space. Um, It's time once again to uh, meet one of the listeners of high performance and um, instead of me reading out the message and telling the story I think that Phil should probably tell his own story. So, Phil, thank you, first of all, so much for joining us. Um, obviously, this is a podcast, so people can hear it. They can't see it. But just to paint a picture, we're, we're chatting over Zoom. Um, you've got a couple of wings, clearly, on your T-shirt you're wearing. Behind you, I can see images of planes and helicopters and all sorts. And that is a nice way of introducing the life that, that, that you've enjoyed and lived. So, would you mind sharing a bit of that story to start with with our listeners? Sure, it would be my, my pleasure to do so. So I, I come from humble beginnings, uh, somebody who has not been blessed with above average credentials in terms of physical or mental aptitude, but I'm someone who's been pretty gritty and determined. And some would say I've, I've been able to achieve some uh, quite extraordinary things, but I had a huge reality check. Um, in 2014, I was on cloud nine. At the time I was a, a combat helicopter pilot doing really well in the RAF, you know, racing up the promotion and the ranks. I had uh, a wonderful family, a beautiful wife, Beth, and two gorgeous daughters, Isla and Bella. So life uh, in terms of career and family w- was running on rails. And, and sporting-wise, a hugely passionate sportsman, that was going really well. I was, I was representing the Royal Air Force in triathlon and marathon. And, and life was as good as it got. Or so I thought, 
And I, I distinctly remember one weekend in, in 2014. On the Saturday, I'd got to fly at the front of the Queen's birthday fly past over Buckingham Palace. And then on the Sunday, it was Father's Day, which I, I spent with my girls. And we went to a triathlon, which I even managed to, to win and, and come across the finish line with my, my daughters. So I thought, this is as good as it got. And if someone had said to me, in four weeks' time, you'll be a crumpled heap, I'd have said, that's rubbish. It's ridiculous. I'm resilient. I've got this high-performance thing nailed. But the truth was, it was just a thin veneer. And in the next four weeks, uh, as a family, we discovered that Isla, my, my 22-month-old youngest daughter, had leukemia. And life unraveled. It was the most gut-wrenching experience. I felt wholly ill-equipped, just stood on the sidelines while young Isla walked this tightrope of life and death. And I felt I couldn't do anything about it. My whole life I'd been able to fix stuff, but I had to sit back and let the miracle workers from the NHS and charities step in. And, and so that, that is when I started to learn properly about high performance, properly about psychological resilience. Uh, and what happened from that point was I, I realised that my purpose was to use what I could do, which was, I guess, my, my sporting pedigree. And I wanted to celebrate each year Isla was in remission from leukaemia and set myself challenges right on the edge of the possible. And so each year I set a physical challenge, which scared me, it intimidated me. And it allowed me to connect with Isla, to understand her fear, her uncertainty, some of the pain, some of the suffering, and also to raise money for some of the incredible charities which supported Isla. And so it started this series of five challenges which connected me to my true purpose, connected me to my daughter, and really taught me about high performance. So I, I guess that's, that's the story in brief, gentlemen. Bloody hell. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, I mean, thank you for sharing so openly and candidly, Phil. I think I, it's uh, just left me a little bit speechless. I'm interested in what you said there about you wanted to experience the fear that Isla had gone through and in terms of the challenges you take on. Would you tell us a little bit about that fear and how, how long it lasts and how you sort of journey through it? Sure. So, I think when Isla got diagnosed, I, I thought I understood fear. I thought I had mastered it. I'd, I'd been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan as a, a combat helicopter pilot. I thought I knew what, what terror was, but it was nothing. I was wholly ill-equipped and I was, I was just mortified at what lay ahead. So the challenges were a way of me to try and understand what poor Isla was going through. It was an opportunity for me to reframe what I was doing and think about what she was doing. So in the challenges, for example, in, in some of the runs or, or what later became the big one, the row across the Atlantic, it was a chance to try and understand those, those first experiences she had. So the uncertainty of being in hospital, that alien environment, having two and a half years of chemotherapy to try and understand what that meant and what she was going through. And just that unfamiliarity with, with that horrendous journey she went on. So for me, it, it was a way of sort of processing what she went through, but also connecting me because at the time I, I felt I couldn't support her as a father. So it, it was something positive I could do in that terrible time in our lives. And I, I think, Phil, that this resilience, this adaptability, 
this desire to be able to deal with anything that comes our way. Like we all have that and we'd all love to develop those skills, but none of us want to go through what you and Ida and your family have gone through. So is there anything that you've learned from that period that you could share with us, a lesson about resilience and about that, you know, that adaptability that you've had to bring into your life that, that we could all learn from without the, the trauma that you've, you've clearly had to face as well? That's a great question, Jake. And I, I often reflect back, I would never want anyone to experience what we've experienced as a family, but I wish they could see the world through our eyes. And, and I think my own, own experience was I naively thought I was bulletproof, utterly resilient, but I just had a thin veneer that in reality is a thin veneer of resilience. And resilience is a, a lifelong journey. It's a project you've got to set yourself and constantly feed. So I think there's putting yourself in stretch. Yes, you know, I think Ross Edgley calls it wintering the mind and body. So that absolutely is important, getting comfortable, being uncomfortable. But what I found really worked was the network. I didn't realize the importance of a social network in terms of psychological resilience. And, and when I wasn't able to do anything, when I was suffering in hospital, when I could just sit on the sidelines, it was realizing actually the support of others is so critical to psychological resilience. That social network, calling on friends who, who came in with meals on wheels service, would call in the middle of the night, would, would come to the hospital uh, and, and support us as a family. So, so that was the real learning point to me, the, the importance of that social network in providing and supporting your resilience. And we're all humbled by the fact that you've invited high performance with us on some of these incredible journeys you've been on, Phil. Is there one particular message or lesson that you've taken from the interviews you've heard that have helped you? So many. So the final challenge was a team challenge, and this, this was rowing across the Atlantic with three Royal Air Force colleagues, all avid fans of the podcast. And the whole way across, we were trying to reflect and see how some of the lessons applied to what we were doing. And I think ones which stand out. So one would be world-class basics and the compound effect. In the lead up to rowing across the Atlantic, we had to commit to a simple training regime, knowing that each day we weren't making that much progress, but that compounded over time. As long as we stuck to these disciplined world-class basics, it was going to lead to us being on the start line fully equipped to take on a nearly impossible challenge. I think another one would be the importance of vulnerability. Uh, on the boat, we had nothing to prove to each other. All of us were, were combat pilots who had served in, in theatres around the world. We didn't have to prove that we were you know, men of metal or, or stronger than anything. We were, didn't need to be Spartacus. We could be vulnerable. And that was hugely important because there were times in that, that row where you were feeling utterly at your lowest ebb and being able to talk it through and pull on the energy of the rest of the team was critically important. And I'd say the final one was, was purpose. Initially going into it, it was just my purpose, which was raising money, raising awareness for cancer charities and, and connecting with Isla. But the whole team got on board with this shared vision, this, this shared purpose. And it was so powerful. And we definitely 
you know, the whole was greater than the sum of the parts. And, and that was due to this shared purpose. So these are all lessons which, which came out from, from your podcast and being able to crystallize them, you know, on the Atlantic was, was a really special moment for us. Wonderful. And the most important question of all is, how's Isla doing now? <laughs> You're right. It is the most important thing. So Isla is nine years old, nearly 10. She has defeated cancer and that, that was last uh, November. So she'd been in remission for five years. So after nearly a thousand doses of chemotherapy, uh, 20 plus blood transfusions, months in hospital, she's done it. And the best thing is you'd never know. Uh, and she, she's my resilience role model. She optimizes it, never feels sorry for herself one second. Um, look, thank you so much, Phil, for coming on and, and sharing that story. And I know that will be so helpful for so many people. Um, and um, what a, a fascinating and amazing thing to come on and tell us. Thank you, gentlemen. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. And thanks for producing such a brilliant podcast. Oh, listen, I really hope that you've all enjoyed this episode. Just a quick reminder that if you want to hear High Performance without adverts and get access to loads more content, we're uploading three or four original pieces of content every single week to our High Performance Plus premium subscription service. You can find details in the app where you're listening to this podcast, um, or you can just find us on Instagram and you can get all the details right there. But as always, huge thanks goes to you for growing and sharing this podcast among your community. Despite the fact that we have a premium service, remember this podcast will always remain free because we want people to hear the messages and take the learnings. So please continue to spread what you're taking from this podcast series. Thank you to Finn, to Hannah, to Will, to Eve, to Gemma, to everyone involved in the podcast. Huge thanks to Frank Lampard and everyone at Everton for their help. But please remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. And we'll see you very soon. Mm-hmm.